You join me as we prepare our hearts in prayer. <clears throat> you have heard our praises, Father. Sometimes our minds have wandered. Other times they have been focused specifically on what we have been singing. Our offerings at best are incomplete and flawed, but I thank you that because we give them in Jesus' name, they are acceptable to you. Thank you that Christ himself is leading the worship as our high priest and that his prayers rise up as a sweet and a fragrant offering to you. Now, because we trust you are so completely pleased with your son, that you are so satisfied with his offering on the cross and his perfect life of obedience on earth, for his sake and in his name we plead before you our need to hear from you. You are a God who promised to give us bread. You said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. We live in a land where we have much of daily bread. We come this morning to confess to you that without the bread from heaven, our souls would starve. And so we pray that you will feed us, spread that banqueting table for us, Lead us to the point where we desire the things that you've spread out for us and that we eat gladly and joyfully because our souls depend upon it. Your promise is that if we come to you, you will give to us so that our souls will live. We want our souls to live, Father, so we come to you this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want you to follow this quote with me fairly carefully. It's a little bit longer than usual, but it's not obscure. Uh, Os Guinness in his book, The Call, wrote these words. Excuse me. My computer has gone to sleep there. says, The modern world offers an endless range of choice and change, overwhelming traditional simplicities and cohesion. This intensification of choice and change has affected us on many levels. Life has become a smorgasbord with an endless array of dishes. And more important, choice is no longer just a state of mind. Choice has become a value, a right. To be modern is to be addicted to choice and change. Each choice sprouts with its own questions. Might we? Could we? Should we? Will we? Won't we? What if we had? What if we had not? And the forest of questions leads deeper and deeper into the dark freedom. Then to the ever darker anxiety of seemingly infinite possibilities. And this is the critical part. And most devastating of all, the increase in choice and change leads to a decrease in commitment and continuity to everyone and everything. Thus, obligation melts into option. We are taught to avoid, above all, being stuck with commitments that might mortgage the freedom of tomorrow. Choice for modern people is a right that overwhelms both responsibility and rationality. And this is perhaps the most critical insight, probably one of the most brilliant ones I have read. Ultimately, only one thing can conquer choice, being chosen. My challenge is therefore deliberate. Many followers of Jesus today have not begun to wrestle with the full dimensions of the truth of calling because they have not been stretched by the real challenges of today's world and by the momentousness of the present hour. A time to stand is a time to behave as our Lord would wish us to behave. A time to behave is a time to believe as He taught us to believe. A time to believe is a time to move from small, cozy formulations of faith to knowing what it is to be called by Him as the deepest, most stirring and most consuming passion of our lives.
Let me read that last sentence for you again. A time to believe is a time to move from small, cozy formulations of faith to knowing what it is to be called by Him as the deepest, most stirring and most consuming passion of our lives. We are living in such a time. We are learning to believe God in fresh ways. We are focusing upon faith in the mornings. But it is a time to move out from cozy formulations. To engage at the deepest level what it means to be called. And this morning in our study of Hebrews 11, we have come to such a man. Who because he knew he was chosen and called, made some very courageous choices. And didn't reserve all his options. In case something better turned up. Hebrews 11 verses 24 to 27. Read with me. By faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. The first courageous choice that Moses made was that when he was grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If we read the story in Exodus chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7, all the details are in your study guide. This happened sometime when he was about 40 years old. He went out to where his people, the Hebrew slaves, were being cruelly mistreated and a particular Egyptian uh, overseer was brutally beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And after checking to make sure no one was watching, Moses took a risky step. He intervened and he killed the Egyptian. Now while it was perhaps not the wisest strategy on which to embark to be a deliverer of his people, that action nonetheless represented a a point of no return decision. It was an action that permanently identified himself with the Hebrew slaves. Verse 25, which in our translation looks like a separate choice, but in the original reads as a continuation, is the other half of it. It says, by faith when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated along with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. To be identified with the people of God rather than to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter was to choose to be mistreated along with the people Rather, and to turn his back upon the pleasures of sin. Now, when we read the word sin, we are most likely to think about those kinds of sins that we just finished confessing. And there was certainly ample opportunity as a royal son in the household of Egypt for him to indulge in many of those passions, lust and gluttony probably above all. But something more than that was at stake here. Because logically there's no connection between sin and identifying with the people of God. I think what happened was that day when Moses was watching his people being beaten so brutally, he perhaps realized for the first time that the price for all of the pleasures he was enjoying as a royal son in Pharaoh's household was the suffering and the brutality of his own people. It was upon their broken backs that the glory of Egypt was built. And therefore to remain in that position and continue to participate in those pleasures, sinful or otherwise, would be to acquiesce in the treatment of his own people. 
And therefore, to remain would be to walk away from the people of God. Probably the closest thing to what we might think of as apostasy today. So far, far more than just the pleasures of lust and gluttony were involved in here. Now you might say, but this is all supposed to be by faith. How is this an illustration of what we've been learning about faith in visible and invisible reality? Well, well, let's take a look at how those two realities stacked up for Moses. Let's look at visible reality first of all. Acts chapter 7 tells us that Moses was a man who was uh, trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, powerful in speech and action. Now you've got to admit that the future looks pretty bright for someone like that. I mean, if you're trained in practical wisdom, if you are eloquent in your conversations, if you're a man of action and you've got royal connections, well, in fact, you're royal to yourself. The future looks pretty bright for someone like that. At the same time, what did visible reality say about the slaves? <laughs> Marginalized, weak, so many brick-making units, that's all they were destined to die. That's visible reality. What did invisible reality say? <laughs> invisible reality said this motley group of slaves were the people of God. They were the repository of the promises of, made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that they will one day inherit the land and they will bless the nations of the world. That was invisible reality. And by the way, invisible reality also said that the pleasures of sin of Egypt would be for a short time. Egypt looked impregnable at that time. Egypt looked set to be the most powerful country in the world for decades, if not millennia. But God said short time. In the original language, it comes from the word kairos, which means an appointed time. That was invisible reality. Visible reality, the power of Egypt, great future for Moses, a bunch of slaves. Invisible reality, all the glory and pomp of Egypt is short-lived, destined to die, and instead these people will continue on forever in their global influence. So Moses' choice was exactly what we've been learning from Hebrews 11. A decision that is based on invisible reality revealed in the word of God. With a hope for the future. Okay, how does that work for us today? First of all, for the audience for which Hebrews was written, it was very obvious. They were a suffering church. But because of the pressure of suffering, some of them were beginning to dissociate from the body of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, he had said to them, let us not forsake assembling together, probably in a house church or wherever they met. And so this example from Moses would, be, would serve as a twofold function for the churches that were meeting to not give in, to continue to identify with the people of God. And for those who might have stopped coming to say, come back, identify yourself with the people of God. Here's where the future is. And so today the most obvious ready application of this call to this kind of faith from the life of Moses is to the persecuted church in the world today. Because in many parts of the world to openly identify yourself with the people of God is to invite persecution and harassment. And it almost always begins with baptism. Baptism in many, many parts of the world today is a public declaration to all that I am identifying with this group of people known as Christians, the church here. And therefore it opens the door to suffering and difficulty. What an encouragement this would be to people like that. <laughs> to say, hey, the same invisible reality is working for you. These marginalized people that seem so powerless today, they are the repositories of the promise of God. Through them all nations of the earth will be blessed. And all these powerful opponents of yours that today because of their power are able to oppress you, that's short-lived. How about for you and me? 
were not in persecution. Today, because you are here, there's no danger that your house is being ransacked by the government. At least not yet. What does this have to say? What does Moses have to say to you and me? I think today our greatest obstacle to identifying with the people of God is this prevailing aura of rugged individualism that characterizes North America. So here's my question for you. What is your primary identity? Is your primary identity the modern day equivalence of to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Is it to get that job in the corner office? Is it to be able to own a house in this particular settlement? Is it to get this particular title behind your job? Is it to become a member of this particular club or whatever? And then you have arrived? Visible reality is continuously and steadily screaming at us that that's where significance lies. That's what it means to be with the in-group. Or maybe for you high school and college students, it might be a particular group in school. By the way, visible reality is also making fun of the church. <laughs> what is that? Marginalized, irrelevant, no voice in society. Made of a bunch of powerless weaklings. That's visible reality. So here's my question again. What unmistakable signal have you sent to the people around you, here and outside, that your primary identity is that you belong to the universal body of Christ of which this local body is the concrete expression. Now some of the most obvious ways, in many parts of the world even here, are baptism and membership. When people give testimonies in baptism, when they become members of this particular local church, that's one unmistakable way of saying, hey, count me in as part of this group. And through our Christian Life and Service seminars, which over 600 of you have gone through, dozens of you, probably well over 100, had indicated a desire to follow through in baptism and follow through in membership. And you didn't follow through. I don't know who you are, but you do. And I would encourage you to seriously consider following through on that. And our nominating committee has been going through our work, setting up our slate of officers for next year. I don't know, I can't tell you how many times one of the members of the nominating committee that you elected would say, how about so and so? And I would have to say to them, oh, they're not members yet. There are many of you who have gifts of leadership that this church needs. And if you're going to identify yourself with this body, take the steps that are needed so you can begin to serve. Now, those are obvious ways, but I think we all know that it's possible to jump through the hoops of baptism, whether infant baptism or adult baptism. It's possible to go through all the steps of membership and still be running after those titles of visible reality. So merely going through the hoops doesn't do anything. So let me ask you again. What unmistakable signals do people around you pick up that your throbbing center of your identity is that you are part of a body of believers? of whom Jesus Christ is the head. You know, it was said of Jesus that zeal for the Father's house consumed him and the disciples saw it. Would the people around you know from your conversations and social settings, in, in, in your priorities and what you read, what you talk about, what gets you excited, that, that, that the church, this local church, which is an expression of the universal church, is that for which your heart beats and goes up and down with its joys and sorrows? Or, or is your heart more affected by the stock market going up and down? I don't know the answers to these questions, but I have to ask them. That's what this text is all about. That's why I think, perhaps even more than 
Baptism and membership, although those things are important if you properly understand them. A significant measure of this is your service in the church. How can you be identified primarily with a body and not serve that body? Well, that's why we serve our families naturally. Our nuclear families, we serve one most of the time. We serve one another naturally. Because we know we are part of that family. That's our identity. But this is an even more foundation. In fact, this is the fundamental family. And that's where I think turning your back upon pleasure, not just of, just of sin, but any, a lot of other pleasures comes. Because to serve this body means to invest time, to invest energy, to get trained, to get discipled, to find out what your gifts are, to, to serve in the body of Christ. Which means you have proportionately less money, less time, less energy to invest in the pursuit of all those dimensions of visible reality that give you identity. And there is definite pleasure in them, but that pleasure is short-lived. <laughs> Every one of us knows that. Every one of us knows that after we've chased after one of those things, the pleasure is gone. The, in fact, the, the greater pleasure is in the chase. Economists know it. They call it the law of diminishing marginal utility. You've got to get more and more to get the same pleasure. Eventually you get everything and get no pleasure. That's the short-lived nature of all those dimensions of visible reality. But when we invest in the church, you are investing in something that will last forever. So think about it. And then how about outside? That's just to the church. How about outside to the world? In, in, in a non-Christian setting, in the, in the church, in a work setting, if someone begins to, to deride the church or mock the church or say something derogatory about the church, do you speak up? Or, or you don't want to be known as being one of those? Because it might get in the way of your advancement. If someone would ask you, hey, what did you do last weekend? Or what are you doing this weekend? which used to be the constant subject when I worked for Atomic Energy of Canada. What are you doing? What did you do? Do you talk about the fact, hey, I'm learning to believe God more? <laughs> We're doing a very interesting study in our church on, on, on visible, invisible reality. Or do, or do you want to hide that part of your life? Who do you identify with? So please, I'm inviting you today because of the kind of times we live in. Because you're a called and a chosen people. Settle this issue of what my primary identity is going to be. Now Moses goes on and makes another choice. Oh, sorry, let me back up. Uh, invisible reality, which is what allows us to make that decision, is revealed in God's word. So I put together a few verses of scripture, and there are many, many more, uh, that help me to think like this about the church whenever I'm tempted and pulled in the other way. Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. According to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the only enterprise that is guaranteed to succeed. The only one. About nothing else can we say it will not be overcome. Then look at this. Talking about Jesus where he is today. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything. What a glorious picture of Christ. And then notice these words, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This wonderfully magnificent, exalted Christ is given and has head over all things, isn't given for Sundar Krishna. <laughs> Or for Alison, it's given for the church. 
Is it worthwhile identifying with a body like that? Is it worthwhile making that my primary identity of which we have such a head? And then when everything's all finished, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's you and me, <laughs> coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God forever. It's pictures like this that show us what invisible reality is like. And it's by thinking and meditating upon those things that when the choice is before us, we can say, yes, I will choose to be known as part of the people of God and not as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now Moses goes on with another choice. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Here again, it is the choice is determined by visible and invisible reality. Visible reality told us all the treasures were in Egypt and they were most powerful nation in all the world at that time. Magnificent in its culture, in its buildings and literal treasure. In contrast to that, what did the slaves have? They owned nothing. They were owned. <laughs> when you're owned, you own nothing. Can't imagine a greater contrast in visible reality. What was invisible reality? Invisible reality, he said, the disgraces of Christ were more valuable than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to the reward. Now you need to remember, it didn't just say he counted the disgraces of Christ more valuable than treasures. Moses wasn't looking at suffering and saying, wow, how wonderful this is, that's morbid. No, no, he counted the disgraces more because he was looking ahead to a reward. And it was a reward that was greater than the treasures of Egypt. Again, the application to the church that first received this letter is obvious. Because of their decision to identify with the church uh, by visiting people who were in prison, they had all their goods taken away. Hebrews chapter 10 refers to that. And he says, you were able to endure that joyfully. Why? Because you knew you had better and lasting possessions. And so this example from Moses comes to them as a reinforcement of how they've already behaved and an encouragement to continue to behave that way. But what about for you and me? Because I said today, today we're not in a position where our treasures are being seized. Today we're not in a position where uh, there is disgrace associated directly with being part of the body of Christ. How do we need to, how does this apply to us? I'll tell you the most obvious way this applies to us is that in this North American culture of which we are a part, where compared to the rest of the world we are unbelievably wealthy, all of us, the treasures are literal treasures of money. Money exerts an incredible power upon us that interferes with being both part of the people of God and serving that body. I came across some, a study recently that was probably one of the most frightening things I've read about money. It was done at the University of Minnesota. Merely the sight of money can change a person's behavior. Not even owning it, the sight of it. The University of Minnesota conducted a series of nine experiments in which people were asked to do puzzles or other tasks. The behavior of people exposed to money was compared to others who were not prompted to think about it at all. In one test, 61 students at the University of British Columbia sat at desks to complete questionnaires. That's all they were doing, completing questionnaires. Some desks faced a poster showing money, not even money, a poster showing money. Some saw a poster of flowers and others saw a seascape. 
They were then asked to choose between group or individual recreational activities. Nothing really huge in terms of the kingdom of God, right? Such as a dinner for four or individual cooking lessons. And notice this. Those who had seen the money poster were more likely to pick individual activities than those looking at the other posters. Exposure to money or the concept of money elevates a sense of self-sufficiency and can make people less social, she said. Over time, people with money did not need other people so much. Do you see how it interferes with the need to identify with the people of God? Why would you identify with the people you don't need them? Uh, the second experiment is even scarier. Over time, people with money... Okay, let's go back. In another experiment, 44 students at the University of Florida State University were given 8 25-cent coins, which they were told, not exactly a lot of money, right? Which they were told was left over from a previous experiment. They were asked to unscramble sentences that divided the subjects into two groups. One that was reminded of money by the sentence and the others that were not. That's all they were doing, playing a version of Scrabble. As the students left... The researcher mentioned that a box was beside the door for donations for needy students if the subjects wanted to chip in. But they didn't have to. On average, students who had read neutral sentences donated $1.34, while those whose sentences reminded them of money kept more for themselves, giving an average of just 77 cents, 50% less. You should be dead scared when you read something like that. That's how powerful money is. Interfering simultaneously with the desire for community and with the desire to give, which is part of serving the body of Christ. It's a good reminder for us in December. I've shared with you the kind of giving that we need and every year you've been faithful and we trust you will know God's faithfulness this year too. And our Imagine campaign, while I've told you it has a lot more to do than with money, certainly doesn't have to do with less than money. So here's my question. How? How are we going to give the way God wants us to give? Cheerfully and joyfully. Especially in the face of this relentless grip that visible reality has upon us. You'll do it the way Moses did. By looking beyond to the rewards that are awaiting us. And therefore we will see and treasure those rewards as greater than just the treasures that God has put within our hands. And, and may I say something, please, let's not be more spiritual than God. We need to put behind us this notion, I've told you this before, we need to put behind us this notion that we should not be serving God for what we can get from Him. We should serve God just because it's our duty. Let me ask you a question. Suppose I were to tell you that I don't really like serving as senior pastor in this church. I don't like all the studying that I have to do and I just do not like to preach at all every Sunday morning here. I just do it because I have a duty to you. How honored would you be feel felt by that? Eh? Not much, I don't think. What if I said to you instead, which by the way is the truth, that I absolutely love to study God's word. Sunday is my busiest but my most exciting. I look forward to Sundays. I love it because I love this church. I love to be in this place. Which one honors you more? That I did it out of duty or because I get joy from it? You think God is less spiritual than you are? What do you think He's honored by? Dull, reluctant performance of duty? Or because you believe Him to be the giver? Listen, listen. God unashamedly and the Bible unashamedly portrays before us the concept of giving to get. 
Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house, says the Lord, because it is your duty to do so. Then say that. He says, test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Does that sound like give to get or duty? And if you say, well, I don't trust anybody but Jesus, here's what he said. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured together. What does that sound like? You can't get rid of these verses. And they are not isolated. They run through the whole Bible. God is not glorified by being given to. He is glorified by being taken from. Now, of course, the rewards are not money in most cases. It is, by the way, for some people whom God has given the special gift and calling to make it and give it away. Because once God has somebody's heart, he can give them millions of dollars and wouldn't hurt them. But for most of us, it's not that. It's this freedom. It's the freedom and the joy that comes in breaking this grip of this thing that is that the very sight and the thought of money that can kill our desire for community and crush our generosity in half. Even when you're looking at only eight quarters. That's scary. Don't you want to be free from that? It, that's the real reward. Two weeks from now, you'll be watching a video of three or four people in our congregation who have shared exciting things about what God has been doing to them through Imagine. But a minor version of this applies to today. One individual who's probably living in the last quarter of his life talked about how after making what he called a ridiculous commitment to Imagine and then being led to make other commitments, he said, in less than one year, I've been completely debt-free for the first time in my whole life. Another person at the other end of the age spectrum, much younger, talked about how God led him to make a commitment to imagine while his job situation was all uncertain. And he said, I wanted to take a risk and make the commitment without knowing what would happen there. Not only did God prove himself faithful in terms of the job, he said, as a result of giving, I now have a desire to give more. That's freedom. No money can buy that. That's the exact opposite of those experiments. And then one other couple, she talked about how they really didn't have much to give and yet they decided they didn't want to miss out. And after they'd made a fairly scary commitment for themselves, the other spouse said, I think we need to double that. And they did. And she goes on to talk about how God not only took care of that, but supplied a whole bunch of other needs that they couldn't have even imagined getting, which were, which were matching their family's needs. That's the kind of reward that we need to follow Moses in and looking upon to be able to serve the body of Christ in this way and say, I count that more valuable than the treasures that I have. Because what is coming is even greater joy. Then, then if someday showing up at church means risking losing your house, we might just be willing to come to church. But we'll probably have to learn in these small ways as we move along. One more and we are finished. The last verse says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. It's a little bit more of a difficult verse to understand because it says by faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. Sounds like he left Egypt because he was afraid of the king. That's why he ran away. If you read the story, you'll find Moses ran away because he's going to be killed. That sounds to me like fear. So what is this text saying by faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger? I, I'm not sure. I don't think I didn't come across any uh, really persuasive answer. So it's going to have to remain a mystery. But let me suggest a couple of things. Sometimes Living in, in the faith in invisible reality doesn't mean that we don't take wise precautions for the present. Faith in invisible reality might take you to work in the inner city. But you probably would be wise to put deadbolts on your doors. 
And the same, something like that was probably at work here. Moses knew he was called to deliver his people. He also knew that Pharaoh now knew that he'd killed an Egyptian. So if he hung around, he wouldn't be hanging around much longer. And it's like that little adage that we used to have when we were growing up. He who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. You know? Moses probably reasoned, if I run, then I will live to be the deliverer of these people. And by the way, where he ran was Midian. If you look in the map where Midian was, it wasn't exactly the Bahamas. And to go on foot, which is, the, I don't know how he got there, from Egypt all the way across the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, took a lot of faith to run and count on God to preserve him, and he did. But the thing that we can say for sure is the second half. He persevered as one who saw God. You see, perseverance is critical. You know why? Because you can listen to a sermon like this in the context of a worship service like this, and say, yes, yes, I want to identify with the people of God. I want to use my treasure in this way. I want to have that grip of money broken upon my life. Uh, I, I want to invest in that which is eternal. I, I, I don't want to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Yes, yes, yes. And by Wednesday it's all gone. You know why? Because you're bang in the middle of visible reality, shouting out its message. So you're going to have to find some way of continually persevering in resisting that. Notice what it says here. He persevered because he saw him who's invisible. Now invisible reality wasn't the people of God who, was go- who were going to inherit the promised land. Now invisible reality wasn't even the rewards. Now invisible reality was God himself. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 says. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those that seek him diligently. When Moses ended up in Midian, he didn't know he was going to be there 40 years. <laughs> 40 years before he saw the burning bush. But was it during those 40 years that he began to think about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. There was no Bible for him. He wrote it. He started Moses wrote it. <laughs> it was probably his mother in those few years that she had him with her before she went, to, went back to Egypt. What do you think she filled his mind with? I don't think she was talking about nursery rhymes. She told him the stories of their ancestors. The promise made to Abraham. How it was passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Joseph. And how we have a promise of those bones going to go back. And we learned that all last week. <laughs> So maybe during this wilderness for 40 years he reflected upon all the stories that his mother had told him. Maybe the genesis of Genesis was taking place at that time. Who knows? And it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph that was the object of his attention for those 40 years. And so you're going to have to go from here and you're going to have to persevere. Those of you who are taking believing God, you've got a very natural way of persevering where day after day you're doing homework and focusing on that. Others of you have the study guide for you. And maybe other way as you read through your Bible. Because it is the scriptures that reveal to us who God is. It is in thinking about Him. It is in regularly filling your mind with a revelation of invisible reality. That we will be able to persevere. In these choices that we make on days like today. Really, in one sense, this sentence is a summary not just of the life of Moses, not just of the topic of courageous choice we're talking about, but everything we've learned so far in Hebrews. For it is by faith in invisible reality, it is by this focus upon seeing him who is invisible, that like Abel we will shape our worship into that which satisfy God. It is by faith that we will fulfill life's routine responsibilities like Enoch. It is by faith that we will heed the warning of coming judgment like Noah and receive the righteousness that comes by faith and offer that righteousness to others, which is what many of our Christmas outreaches are all about. It is by faith that we will embark on a life of adventure, not going where we don't know where we are going, retaining flexibility to be able to move in response to God's promptings. Our eyes upon the city of God like Abraham. 
It is by faith that we will learn to bear fruit out of barrenness because like Abraham and Sarah, we are convinced that there is a God who can bring life out of the dead. And it is by faith that we will bless the next generation and hand over the baton as we shape our blessings by the promises and truths of God's word. And it is by faith that we will serve the people of God because we have, been cho- we have chosen to identify ourselves with the people of God rather than to be known as the sons and daughters of Pharaoh. May God grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened to see him and therefore persevere. And may he grant to you the zeal of the Lord Jesus himself for the house of God and the people of God. And may that zeal uh, begin small but may it steadily consume you until it consumes and eats up every other competing source or focus of your identity. And you will be delighted to be known as part of the people of God and to serve Him with gladness and with joy. Go in Jesus' name.